folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We truly hope that you are staying safe and healthy in this challenging season that we find ourselves in, and we're super happy that you have joined us today. We've got a great show for you. Hey, I wanted to give you a heads up. Ian has been going live on Instagram, and it's been really fun. He went live this past Monday before this podcast and the Monday prior. Now, he might mix it up and not always be going live on Mondays, but be watching for him if he pops up in your feed. Be sure and jump on. I think the last couple have been around seven o'clock. Of course, he's talking about the Enneagram and there's a few friends that have jumped on from time to time. I think Johnny Swim jumped on, Drew and Ellie Holcomb jumped on. This week, the amazing artist and writer Mako Fujimura was on with Ian, hopped on there. Spoken word artist Propaganda jumped on. Uh, I jumped on and sang a song. People ask their Enneagram questions and Ian responds. So it's been a real community experience, a lot of fun. So be sure to jump on for that if you see him pop up in your feed. Hey, this week we've got a great guest and what he does and what his number is, is an interesting combo. Our guest is Russell Moore. He is an ethicist, a theologian, an award-winning writer, and head of the Moral and Public Policy Agency of the SBC. He is a regular commentator on a wide range of issues. Wall Street Journal has called Moore vigorous, cheerful, and fiercely articulate. He was named in 2017 to Politico's magazine list of top 50 influence makers in Washington and has been profiled by such publications as the Washington Post, and The New Yorker. He is the author of several books. You're going to enjoy this interview and we'll wait for the reveal on the number. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Russell Moore, welcome to Typology. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, it's a delight. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, it might be fun to begin with you telling our folks how you and I first connected. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Andrew Peterson, who's a musician. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, we met the first time over at his place. Um, and then since, the, since then, uh, get together uh, regularly over there for all sorts of things, including uh, what I enjoy a lot, uh, reading through T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets uh, together with a group of guys. I really... Uh, uh, that, that's one of the things I look forward to uh, most in any given month. Man, I'll tell you, that that has been a delight. I also want to say that, let me tell you about the first time I'd heard of you. I, I'd, I'd known you by reputation as a writer, as a journalist, um, in your work for the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, I also know you from a great Twitter war with Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> the, the, now, the now epic Twitter war between Russell Moore and Donald Trump. Uh, and, um, but I can recall back, I think it was May 18th on your, uh, podcast, um, which is called signposts, signposts, um, you wrote or did an episode on May 18th called what about the Enneagram? Mm -hmm. And someone said to me, Hey, have you heard Russell Moore did a whole episode devoted to the Enneagram? And I was like, no, no, he didn't. That's like David Brooks doing a show on the Enneagram. I mean, come on. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, I'm being completely serious. And um, uh, so I want to ask you, what motive, what was the inspiration to actually, because it's not in your wheelhouse necessarily. So what, what inspired you to do 
a podcast episode on the Enneagram. Well, the first time I ever heard about the Enneagram uh, was years and years and years ago when I was um, I was in education and theological education, and uh, someone had complained about one of the professors who worked for me uh, assigning a book on the Enneagram, and they said he's assigning this occultic um, uh, thing. And, uh, and, and sort the sort they showed me the image of it. And of course, if, if you just look at it, it does look almost like a pentagram. <laughs> yeah. And so that was the last time that I had thought about it uh, for years and years and years until, uh, I started really benefiting from, uh, Enneagram and, and using it as a, as a tool to be able to understand, especially a lot of the differences uh, between, the way that I would process something and the way that people that I work with or people in my family really helped me with our kids figuring out why my kids are so different hmm. uh, from each other. And, and in some cases for me, and so it was, it was a helpful tool for me. Well, I was so grateful when you did it. You know, it's interesting. We, when the book came out, I anticipated getting a, getting a lot of blowback compared to other books I'd written. I, I expected that, uh, that there would be some in the faith community uh, that would, uh, you know, offer quite a bit of resistance. And, and, and ironically, I received less criticism for The Road Back to You than I have for my other two books combined. I mean, it, uh. it's, it's actually remarkable to me. So one question I have for you, because you are someone who has your finger on the pulse of, the, of culture and faith. Why is it, do you think, that the Enneagram has become such a hot um, topic and resource, even among people who 15 years ago wouldn't have touched it with a stick. I think it's it, it's almost become um, common enough that people are not scared uh, to to talk about it. It doesn't seem like some esoteric uh, sort of uh, thing. Uh, and it's helpful just in giving shorthand uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, talking about various people. And I really haven't found what I worried about uh, at first when Enneagram started to become more popular, especially in my circles. American evangelicalism can be really faddish and can go in, can take any good thing in completely uh, blown out of proportion uh, ways. And so what I was afraid is is that you would have the thing that every Enneagram test cautions against, which is, oh, that's a typical eight for you. You know, that that sort of thing taking place. I really haven't found that very much. Instead, what I found is uh, a lot of people using it exactly the way I think most people would hope, which is to try to understand other people better. Um, I mean, I even had someone say to me, uh, not long ago, about someone that we both knew, I thought that he was just a silly and non-serious person, and now I just get he's a seven. Mm. Uh, and so they're 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 understanding each other better, and I, I find that encouraging. Yeah, well, I find it encouraging too that that uh, people are in faith communities, perhaps of all kinds, or, or people of any type of, of faith background. Have, are developing an interest in self-knowledge, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, and and self-awareness, and uh, so I'm I'm delighted for that. I can't begin to tell you what a 
a good feeling it is to get up in the morning and realize that part of what you're doing is helping people unpack the mystery of how God's image makes itself known in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's a, that's an incredible delight for me. Okay. Now I want to jump into your, uh, we mentioned it at the opening of the show, but I have to be honest and tell you that when I, Listen to your podcast, or maybe prior to that, uh, maybe Andrew had mentioned uh, something about your familiarity with the Enneagram. And then I read up on you, and it's, you know, you, it says here that you're the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, the moral and public policy agency of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. You are an ethicist, a theologian, award-winning writer, and head of the Moral and Public Policy Agency of the SBC. Now, if, if someone had said to me, all right, you got to guess what this guy's type is based on his job title, right? And his education, his CV, all that stuff. I just, right? Uh, we have not done the big reveal yet on your type here, but I would have said, oh, if I had to put a 50 bucks on it with humility, I'd say there's no question he's a one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Agreed. Um, right, Anthony? Yeah. I'm I, surprised uh, that you are the number you are, which we're waiting to reveal. Yes. I um I, we have a dear friend who's been on the show twice. You know him. It's a mutual friend, Lee Camp, mm-hmm. who, yes. who, who is an ethicist and a theologian mm-hmm. and a hardcore one. Yeah. I can Hardcore see one. Ones would be very naturally drawn, as you can imagine, it's a no-brainer, to the world of ethics. Right. Right? They're concerned about what does it mean to be good. Um, they're concerned about virtue. They're concerned about trying to understand what is appropriate and right behavior, thinking, feeling about particular issues of ways of being in the world. Secondly, ones are... Um, very drawn to issues of policy. This is why, by the way, uh, I'm going to out myself a little bit here on some politics, but I think no question, Jimmy Carter was a one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think Elizabeth Warren is a one. I think Hillary Clinton is a one. Um, the problem with one presidents can be, I'm not saying ones can't be present, is they tend to get down into the weeds of policy. Yeah. And then they can't get out of them, right? So they don't operate it. They, they tend to start to operate at 10,000 feet instead of 100,000 feet, and they get lost in the weeds. So all this led me to believe Russell Moore is a one. Policy, ethics, all, you know, <laughs> theologian. He's a one. He's got to be. And then I met you, and you told me you were? A four. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I mean, my, I mean, seriously, my hair caught fire. You told me that you were a four. I was like, I was like, you're a what? You might as well have just told me you were a Martian. I was like, that is not that, you know, one of these things doesn't go with the other. I mean, it was like, Russell, how is it? I'm just curious. Don't you ever get up in the morning and wonder if you're a one? 
Uh, no, but I, I probably, when I just read the list of what each one uh, was without actually reading anything else, I probably would have thought that too. But then uh, the first time that I ever, and I don't even remember which book it was, whether it was yours or, or another, uh, on each Enneagram type, I immediately uh, knew by the time I got to the, the fourth chapter or wherever it was, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Um, and, and I think most people who have been around me very long uh, knew that immediately. My wife certainly did. And a lot of people who worked with me because I'm not an in the weeds policy person. That's not the way that when I was a teacher, that's not the way I taught. And that's not the way that I lead right now. So I'm more concerned. Policy is a little piece of what we do. Um, uh, Most of it is sort of moral formation of people in terms of families and personal lives and churches and whatever. But even the policy piece is um, the policy issues are more um, ways of introducing uh, the gospel story into particular situations and into particular lives. Mm. And so I, I will, I think my team is probably tired of my saying this. I would much rather lose um, in a way that, that has long-term sort of transformative benefits than I would to win in a way uh, that would diminish um, who someone is as a person or diminish the authenticity of the gospel or, or, or those sorts of things. Mm. Well, but I'm reliant on ones. Uh, I need a lot of ones around me uh, who really, really like to uh, who like to go deep into the weeds, ones and fives on all sorts of stuff. And who also uh, I'm I'm the sort of person who is always or not always, but both and as much as possible. I can I can see the benefits of multiple things and I, I want to to synthesize them uh, wherever wherever that's that's good and possible and I need a lot of those either or uh, people in order to rightly see what the various options and possibilities are in front of me I really need that oh all right we've had enough wisdom for one show we can cut this baby off I mean so here you are if you had told me early on, if I got to know you uh, post early on, uh, that you were a both and thinker, then I'd go, uh-oh, he's probably not a one because ones tend to be uh, dualistic thinkers. They yeah. are either or types, uh, black and white thinkers. Um, and to hear a four who's a both and thinker say, I need either or people around me. I just think that is such, that's modeling how the Enneagram can be helpful in management situations and in relationships with partners or, you know, children. It's like, well, it's like Corinthians. You can't tell the hand that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't need the eye or whatever the, the exact, sorry, you probably know the exact quote. I don't, um, but we, we, we get the idea, right? Like we, we need each other to, to be at our, our, our very best. But hear me, I'm not saying that I like it. Uh, always. Right, right. So, so I, I have to kind of check myself at getting annoyed uh, at, uh, I have a lot of ones, a lot of eights, a lot of threes around me. And, uh, and I sometimes get 
uh, annoyed and, and have to sort of remind myself of what's, uh, of what's going on here. Uh, but so it's not, not a, uh, it's not something I always naturally do. Or like. Well, and I'm sure, I'm sure this is, I mean, uh, I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but I'm sure particularly your eights and your ones get annoyed with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say eights interpret both and thinking as weakness, right? Indecisive, right. indecisiveness, which to them is a sign of, uh, you know, not being solid, not being strong. Yes. Right? Uh, and ones don't like it uh, because for them, things are either right or wrong. And yes. there's no such thing as nuance. Or yes. there is, there is. I mean, we're overstating it here. But yep. nuance does not come naturally to a, to a one. Right. And the other thing is a, a lot of the, the eights that I have around me that I need, uh, I really do, uh, sometimes have the idea that because the, the benefit that I bring is content, imagination, ideas, vision, all of that sort of thing. Uh, they sometimes have the idea that just happens. And so uh, I have to sort of constantly work against people who want to um, put me at ribbon cuttings all day, every day, and still expect <laughs> me to be able to do the stuff that, that I do. And I, I can't do that and sometimes have to explain that and re-explain right. it. You know, you talked about content. I just uh, read for the second time this morning, you just had an op-ed in the New York Times, what, about two weeks ago, was it? Yes, I think so. Uh, you had an op-ed in the New York Times uh, titled, um, God Doesn't Want Us to Sacrifice the Old. Uh, Christianity teaches that every single life is valuable during a pandemic. And um, boy, what a great op-ed. Thank you. Yeah. And, and written with that fourish empathy, broad view. Um, it wasn't... I didn't feel like it was finger waggy at all. Uh, it it um, was just beautifully composed. And anyway, I, I just want to throw that in to commend the people to read that article. Um, and uh, because it was a really wonderful perspective during a time in our current crisis when some people have been saying, why don't we just let the old go, yeah. you know, so that we can get back to work, uh, which, which, it's, which is kind of either or thinking, yeah. you know, it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, let's just do this in favor of that. And um, I thought it was a, a wonderful counter to, to that. All right. So um, I have a question for you. Fours tend to wrestle with existential questions. Um, big. And they, you know, if we look at the bottom of the Enneagram diagram, the, the gap between all the other numbers is the same, right, size-wise. The gap between four and five is larger, it's wider than it is between all the other types. And one of the reasons on the Enneagram, we, we talk about the abyss, which is that big gap that, that sits between four and five, because fours and fives can go into this sort of angst-ridden, existential, they're always sort of peeking over into the abyss. You'll, you'll meet fives who have read a lot of Nietzsche. You know, they've read a lot of Camus and they're looking over the edge. And that's why some fives can get, and fours can get this kind of depressive melancholy. Like they have looked into the darkness below, yeah. you know, in that big gap, right? 
Is that your experience? And is there an existential question, particularly at this moment in our world, that you're wrestling with that keeps that constantly is coming up for you? And maybe it's a boyhood one. Maybe it's followed you through life. What, what would that existential question be for you as a four? Well, two things. I mean, one of them is uh, my wife will sometimes, I heard her explain to somebody uh, one time, she said, if you want to understand my husband, then you have to listen to the music that he listens to. She oh. said, and this is the key. She said, uh, probably the most listened to artist in his entire musical library is Jimmy Buffett. But it's not the fun Caribbean Margaritaville uh, Jimmy Buffett songs. It's the death of an unpopular poet. Uh, he went to Paris. <laughs> the sort of melancholy, morose Jimmy Buffett song. Uh, and, that's, and that's true. And, there's a, and it took her a while. She's a two. It took her a while to get that I actually like uh, when we go back to a place we used to live and I will go to the door of, uh, of the place we used to live and just soak in the nostalgia and the bittersweet pain that comes. <laughs> she, she really can't, uh, can't much get that. Or um, one thing that drives her absolutely crazy because I do it all the time as recently as 30 minutes before we started this interview is I will say things like, do you realize that so-and-so, speaking about somebody from our past, was such and such age at that time. And do you realize it has been 15 years since that happened? And 15 years from now, our kids will be this old and we'll be this old. And you know, she, she, why do you want to, to do that? And so that's always there. Uh, for me, the sort of existing uh, existential anguish um, is a key part of the biography. Uh, for me, because when I was 15, around 15, I was thrown into this tailspin uh, that led to a deep depression uh, that was uh, suicidal. Nobody knew it at the time, but uh, yeah, I, was, I was suicidal um, uh, at the time. And it was over the question of authenticity. And particularly, in my situation, the authenticity of uh, Jesus, uh, of, of the gospel. I grew up in church and belonged in the church, loved the church, um, loved everything uh, about it. But I was in this Bible Belt context where uh, I was seeing a lot of uh, racism and a lot of violence. And that not, not just seeing those things, but seeing those things coming particularly from a Christian, uh, under a Christian name. And so I came to the point where I was starting to wonder, is all of this really just a prop for uh, some sort of culture or some sort of, uh, some sort of political agenda uh, or something like that. That was around the time that not only was I seeing all of that kind of locally, the domestic violence, the racism happening, not in my church, but but in the Bible Belt generally. Seeing that happen, you had the TV evangelist scandals uh, taking place at the same time at the national uh, level. 
Um, and you had, uh, and so my, my question was, if, if this is all just that, it's a means to an end, then that means that Jesus isn't alive. Uh, and if Jesus isn't really there, then everything that I think that I've experienced is false, uh, which means the universe is a really dark, uh, socially Darwinian sort of uh, place. And so thankfully, uh, my I had read through all of the Chronicles of Narnia as a little kid. So I recognized C.S. Lewis's name on the spine of uh, mere Christianity and took it home. And that really, not it, it didn't only save my faith, it probably saved my life. Mm. And not because of the arguments. Uh, so it's not the one or the five sort of going through the arguments and having those intellectual questions resolved. It was that there was something about the the way he was writing that I could tell he wasn't trying to sell me anything uh, and that there was something authentic there. Um, and so that that was a real pivot point and really explains everything else. I mean, everything else that I have done uh, since then is is coming from that moment to that 15 year old. So that's what I'm, that's why I'm driven crazy by cultural Christianity means to an end sort of using Jesus for something else, civil religion, whatever drives me crazy. Um, and, and why I'm, uh, I'm always speaking to that 15 year old kid. Because I know there are others in that situation like that out there, and that's in whatever we're doing. That's who I'm. That's who I'm talking to. Powerful answer. And what you're what you were describing there of that uh, existential crisis, if you will, is to me a, a perfect example of a four looking over the edge. Mm -hmm. Like if there is no, you know, if if there is no explanation for why there is something out of nothing. Yeah. If, if there is no, if Jesus is not who he said he is, that's a four asking questions that a lot of other people going to spaces. A lot of people will just say, don't want to go there. Don't want to go there. Yeah. Fours and fives will go, no, let's go peek over and see how dark it could get. And, yeah. and, you know, oftentimes it doesn't end well for yeah. a fours and fives. See, that was a beautiful description of, of that feature of a, of a fours life. But my next question, even though this is this, this show, this is a little bit off, topic how are you possibly surviving in a current climate <laughs> with those convictions where you have an aversion to the idea of somebody uh co-opting or hijacking jesus for perhaps political purposes how are you surviving um in where, where that's happening everywhere, you know, the sort of commingling of nationalism, populism, and American religion, yeah. uh, particularly evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, I think because there are a lot of people out there who, who, who don't want means to an end uh, Christianity. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who do, but there are a lot of people who don't. Uh, and that's especially the case when you're looking at younger uh, evangelical Christians who I always, I often find myself because I'm, I'm dealing with journalists every day and a lot of them have never, for a lot of them, I'm the only Christian they've ever met. 
uh, or, or church-going Christian uh, that they've ever met in, in their lives or spend any time with. And one of the things I have to say is, you know, you think that younger Christians are um, what you define as liberal. Um, and in, in my context, anyway, they're usually not. They're usually uh, more orthodox, uh, if, if you're defining it theologically, than their parents or, or grandparents would have been just because they've had to work through all this stuff and, and mm. think through all this stuff. Uh, but they're, they're, they're not wanting anything that seems to be marketing. Uh, they, they really do want to be in connection with mere Christianity and with the, the, the actual uh, apostolic gospel. So I think there, there's, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of people like that uh, out there. And uh, a lot of times they're not really paid as much attention to because they're not the people who are um, tabloid worthy. Well, yeah, tabloid worthy <laughs> or because by definition, if you're using Christianity as a means to an end and the end is what interests you and the end happens to interest other people who are watching, then that's going to make it. You know, the other thing I often say to journalists is you assume that evangelicalism, my tradition, is something that's like cicadas uh, going into hibernation between Iowa caucuses so that what's what's really important <laughs> is what is the what is the political angle here right where the, the, the people who uh, I mean, by definition, they're not talking to uh I mean, I could take you even in Iowa, church after church after church that have the most vital and, and growing uh, ministries. I can think of a, a church network as thousands of college kids there. Well, they're not going to be having a voter registration drive on Sunday. They're not going to have candidates uh, show up uh, on Sunday morning. So, so if that's what somebody's interested in, they're just not going to look at those people. Nor are they going to hold a press conference to say, we think that what the church down the street is doing is bad. They just do what they think that they're called to do. And, right. and, and that's how it works out. So I think there are a lot of people uh, like that in the mm. country right now. Yeah. So in this moment, I'm, I've been wondering this question. Well, actually, let me circle back. So you, when I asked you about the existential angst, you know, what, what, that's as a young man you described, and there was a resolution to it. What about today? Is there an existential four-ish kind of question that you find uh, haunts you at the present moment? I, I find that one of the things that's difficult for me is um, being able to deal with um, inauthenticity and hypocrisy in people that I have respected. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't mean sinning. Uh, but I mean, I have had the experience where um, I remember at one point, um, this was years and years and years ago, and now he's a, he's a friend, uh, the, the songwriter and singer Michael Card was a huge influence on me as a mm -hmm. kid, I mean, as a mm -hmm. teenager. His music uh, was really important to me. And I remember uh, being at a conference where I was speaking and he was going to be doing music and I dreaded it 
because I said to my wife, I've had this experience where people that I've, I've read their work or benefited from them in some way, and then I meet them and I find out they're frauds, you know, in yeah. some way or other, or they don't really believe it. Right. Um, I can't, I said, I can't lose Michael Cart, uh, in my life. It's been there at every stage. And thankfully, you know, he's the real deal. And, right. and that, but the, the risk was there. And so I find, and that's especially true, I think now, because I'm able to see some things up close that I previously would not have had. I just wouldn't have had any access to. Um, and it's really, it's, it's hard. Um, it, it's hard to, to deal with. And, and again, not when you have somebody, I mean, we all know people who have sort of wrecked their lives. Um, I, I'm accustomed to that. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm talking about when you see something where you realize, wait a minute, this is somebody who uh, is just engaged in patterns of the most malignant sort of twisted mm-hmm. personality and everybody knows it and everybody close in has known it for years and years and years. That's hard. Uh, you know, and that, and that sort of can send me into a kind of spiral of, of questioning. Um, what do I, what do I know? And what, what's a hall of mirrors around me? So that's, that's an ongoingly difficult mm. uh, sort of thing. And um, I mean, a, a lot of the areas I have to work in, uh, that's the case. And we've been working a lot over the last uh, few years uh, in areas of uh, abuse uh, within the church and just seeing, I mean, I've always known intellectually that that's there, that that happens, dealt with that. But seeing the sorts of, um, not so much that that happens, but the ways that people who should know better can cover that sort of thing up and, and even justify it behind closed doors in ways that they don't in public. Um, that's hard. That's hard for me. And that makes sense because of the fuller's uh, need for, uh, or I should say, fixation on authenticity. Yeah. Uh, which can at times be more about originality. Um, and, uh, unique self-presentation, but, but it's also about, um, I think the fours, fours tend to have, um, an ideal relationship with the past, an ideal view of the past. You were discussing that earlier, right? Touching the doorknobs and walking old neighborhoods and this, you know, and the smell of the leaves on a fall morning. And this is what it was like riding my bike when I was eight and this is on the street, blah, blah, blah. I do the same thing. So don't, don't feel, don't feel uh, like you're the only four in the world who does that. But we also have a thing about um, people and the future, which is the sort of we we hold in the back of our mind unconsciously, I think, a platonic ideal. And and so this person, Michael Card, this person blank, this I had an idealized image of this person. Right. And I'm terrified to get near it to find out that they fall short of the platonic right. ideal, which in the vast majority of cases, nobody can live up to a four's ideal. Right. Nobody, right. You know, and so how did I mean, I think this is why fours often fall into this kind of state of perpetual disappointment yeah. with with people, places and things, because they don't live up to the the ideal 
there's there's always going to be something missing that we we believed was there so yeah. I don't know. I guess we have to work on grace and forgiveness and our unrealistic expectations sometimes of our heroes, right? Yeah. Well, and and that's that's easier for me. Um, that's easier for me than is the idea of um, sometimes I will see situations where it's not so much that the person is falling short of the ideal as much as the person is completely uh, opposite of what the person uh, appears to be or what yes. the person says that he or she yeah. is about. And it, it's not so much that that person drives me crazy as the system around it. I see. Uh, and, and you'll see this a lot in uh, evangelical Christianity in America and in other areas too, Yes, but where this person, we have to sort of keep the illusion around this person or else we'll lose the ministry or the church or you know right. whatever the or the books or the book or sales or uh yeah. the yeah i mean i've seen this tons of times myself i mean i've been in enough green rooms and relationships and places where i've been like whoa that was not what i expected um or that not as advertised um and <laughs> and uh you know that 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 uh that feeling has come up for me uh, uh any any number of times so I'm curious to know if in your world as a four, and I bet everybody has, by the way, some stereotyped understanding of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know what I mean, or the Southern yeah. Baptist world. Have you ever felt like a mismatch or a misfit in that world? All the time in every place. <laughs> the, good, the good thing is, it's not just this world. I'm a misfit and a mismatch in every uh, world that I've ever been in. <laughs> so I'm a guest. <laughs> okay, well, expand. Um, I think that, I mean, growing up, uh, the issue was always that. Um, I was somebody who was really uh, literary and, and, and sort of book oriented in a culture that was not. Uh, and, and so, um, so that was always out of step. And then when I was in, uh, I started out. I, I experienced this call to ministry really early on, but as I looked around at all of the ministers that I knew uh, in my context and culture, I was just, I couldn't fit that, you know, that just wasn't who I was. And so I assumed that that must not be it. And so I, I had moved out into a political uh, sort of life. But there, the issue, I started out as an intern in, in Washington and then moved my way up um, in uh, working for U.S. congressman, ended up being his communications director. I look, I look back and think he was insane. I was 19. You were 19? Uh, 19 at the time. Wow. Uh, but uh, there, the issue was I was a Christian. Um, an evangelical Christian. Now that wouldn't be. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm dealing with uh, I'm dealing with congressional staff members by the thousands now who are uh, committed evangelical Christians. But at the time, that was really rare. 
And so that was, that was sort of uh, out of step. So I've, I've sort of been accustomed to that uh, all along. And, and I had some models. The, the guy that I worked for, the United States congressman I worked for, uh, number one was the real deal. I never had to, I was dealing with a lot of other people who faced all this disappointment about their boss and I was able to say, my guy is exactly the same <laughs> behind closed doors as he is in public. And I was starting to see how unusual that was. But also, he was a total maverick. He was always bucking his party. He was always just doing what he thought was right. And it never bothered him. Um, it bothers me. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm always uh, trying to do what I think is right and acting according to conscience, uh, but being wounded by the rejection that comes, <laughs> that comes from that. So I can't really emulate his life because I don't think he ever cared uh, at mm. all. But I was accustomed to that. You know, you're actually, uh, there's a parallel between you and my life. Um, I, I grew up a Roman Catholic uh, mm -hmm. until... I was in high school, became involved in Young Life. My parents had stopped going to church, but I went to Catholic school until, mm -hmm. parochial school until like fourth or fifth grade. And, you know, there's no such thing as an ex-Catholic. You know what I'm saying? I always tell right. people, people always tell me, oh, I'm, a, I'm an ex-Catholic. And I'm always like, well, yeah. <laughs> no one's ever in my mind, because once it's in the bone and in the blood, it's hard to get out, you know? Yeah. It's no lather, rinse, repeat on Catholicism in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I remember... One of the things I felt when I went into a more evangelical context, this is the 1970s, and it, it was a very different landscape in that day and age. I and mean, we were so much more innocent and, and kinder and, you, you know, it's infinitely different than what it is today. Yeah. Um, I always felt, number one, because I'm a four, and number two, because I was raised Catholic. Like... Um, like a stranger in the promised land of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. um, I was an English major. Uh, I was um, a musician. Um, and we could have a long conversation when I did Andrews about this. I've had it with him once and it was fantastic. That the Protestant imagination is a lot different than the Catholic imagination. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized one day that the 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 reason I felt so out of step in the evangelical world wasn't because of theological differences uh, or just because of my social awkwardness, which there was some of as a four. Um, it was because we had different imaginations. Yes. Um, the, the, the Catholic imagination, well, the, the, the Protestant imagination tends to be, um, sees the world as a place that is absent God's presence, that periodically God shows up and does some really cool things like raise from the dead or put the Bible together or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he takes off again and we live in this fallen world. So there's this fixation on fallenness and sin and brokenness. Whereas the Christian imagination or the Catholic imagination, or we might call it a sacramental imagination, sees the world as brimming with God's presence, that we, that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Thank you, St. Augustine. I mean, you know, it's, 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 and it's a whole different way of seeing the world. And so I'm often telling 
uh, young force that the, in the church that the reason that they may be feeling so estranged and alienated isn't because there's something wrong with them. It's because they're having they're they're in the middle of a clash of imaginations. Mm-hmm. And and so I eventually just migrated away from an evangelical a Protestant world to, toward the Episcopal Church. I mean, which was as close as I could get to a Catholic worldview. Uh, particularly in its high expression, that and I see so many fours. I cannot tell you how many fours on a Sunday morning, uh, who are came from Church of Christ, or they came from the Southern Baptist Church. They came coming over toward the Episcopal Church. Uh, many of them are artists and writers, and it's like they're they come in and they're like, "Oh my gosh, these this is a different world," yeah. you know, and. Um, so I think there, that's the, we see a lot of fours coming in the door of my Episcopal Church, yeah. my, doing a migration uh, of some kind. Is that have you been? Have you observed that pattern yourself? Abs- absolutely, and and I think one of the things that happened with me: one half of my family uh, is evangelical on my father's side; the other half is Roman Catholic on my mother's side, and so I grew up with both. Mm. Uh, around me all the time, which um, I think uh, prevented me, and and this is no slam at Catholicism, as all my Catholic friends will know, because we've talked about it a lot. It prevented me from idealizing Catholicism in a way that I might have done if all I had seen was Bible Belt evangelicalism and have, have said, well, that means if I cross the Tiber, I'm going to be seated in church with a bunch of Walker Percy's and Flannery O'Connor's. Right. And, and, and uh, Thomas Merton's. Yeah, Thomas Merton's, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so I was able to sort of see, um, I also wasn't able to demonize it because I saw such genuine uh, love and, and service among Catholic uh, neighbors uh, and Catholic relatives, uh, often in ways I didn't among the evangelicals but I couldn't idealize it either. And so I, I think those two things were sort of held in, in tension uh, in my life in a way that probably kept that from, from right. being the direction the life took. Well, yeah, it's there you go being both and again. Um, <laughs> and I think, but, I, but I think this is such a rich conversation and I hope it's not too area that for, for people to maintain their interest. But I think like one of the things I just realized is I think fours by nature, and maybe this is part of the misfit thing. I'm going to write about this. I think just, this just came to me is I think by nature have much more sacramental imaginations mm. than other types. Yeah, I think that's true. Who I think have more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not dialogical, but um, anyway, it'll come to me. Um, imaginations, you know, yeah. um, either or imaginations uh, who become anxious when new ideas are, are introduced uh, into mm-hmm. a conversation. Um, they become uneasy when um, institutions or institutional ideas or rules or protocols and things like that are become shaky, right? Uh, whereas fours are like, well, let's engage with the mystery of this thing. Yeah, and, and find out where God is in in the middle of it, and 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 I can see where 
now I can see why you're probably very effective at, at what you do. But I would also imagine you experience real moments of loneliness and feeling, as most fours do, misunderstood. Yes. A lot of the time. Constantly, yes. Tell yeah. me about that before we close up. Tell me about what, it, what it's like, what, what, what the feeling, because I experienced that in evangelicalism as a young man constantly. And people honestly didn't understand me because I was reading Flannery O'Connor and I did have a Catholic mind that I didn't know was there. Um, they, they didn't have an interest in, in reading the kinds of books I did. They didn't, they didn't want to uh, listen to the kind of music I wanted. To. You, you get where I'm going. Like, yeah. So what, and, and that feeling of being misunderstood was so painful. It pierced me because I wanted to belong. Right. And I kept trying to fit the mold, but it just was too awkward. And, Ah, oh, hard for me as a four, and inauthentic too. So, yeah, what's it like for you to feel misunderstood? Uh well, I mean, I think people. Um, I hear people say about me all the time. Uh, oh, it, he's just able to um, shake everything off, and uh, you know, I forget how people would would word it, but think that it's not true at all. That, that's all just a, a facade and a, and a persona. And um, largely because what I'm often trying to do is to make sure that, um, because a lot of the things that I'm dealing with uh, do view vulnerability as weaknesses to exploit. I mean, I even had someone say to me one time who was, doing all sorts of, of things, who said, we know that we can't take you down because all our wives and kids are with you. This is just psychological warfare, uh, which I, I just thought, how, how is this remotely Christian? How do you, how do you say that? Uh, and, and still, but nonetheless, it really, it really was. And so what I have to do is to kind of take myself out of the arena of that kind of psychological warfare, which means I'm better off if I don't know that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll have a lot of people, especially the eights in my life, who kind of love conflict, um, and they, they, they like conflict as something to watch, who will love to sort of call me and say, can you believe what so-and-so said about you? Or did you say, well, no, I haven't seen it, and I don't want to. Uh, I like being ignorant of that so that I don't obsess over it and so that it doesn't change the way that I see that person later on. Uh, mm. if I have to, to deal with that person, it's just better for me not to be, uh, not to know about it. And I, I think, um, it's taken a long time, but we've worked out ways where that really is the case. I'm, I'm, um, blissfully ignorant of a lot of things that I would never have, uh, that I would never have been before. And that's, mm. that's helpful. Well, I got to close out though. I don't want to. And, and we got to go hang. We got to do yeah. another port. We got to sit on the porch more and, and, uh, and, yeah. and talk. Uh, I remember, uh, let me ask you this cause I'm it's setting me up for something actually to, for the, for transparency's sake, what's the one book everyone should in your life should read? Uh, my the, the book that's had the most influence on me of anything is Brothers Karamazov. Mm. 
Uh, and what I've noticed is when I read that uh, at different, I've, I've read it several times and at different stages of my life yep. and how differently it works itself <laughs> uh, yep. in. Uh, and, and I'll even find with several books, um, I'll start all over again. I won't read a copy that I've read before start with a, a brand new copy and then sort of compare where I've made highlights and notes mm. and where it's the same and where it's different. And that usually will tell me a lot about what's going on uh, in my life. That's, that's amazing. And I am, a, I have read uh, the brothers Karamazov many times uh, in different translations. Yeah. Um, and uh, it too had a, a phenomenal impact on, on my life. Um, I, I'm having a, a lot of, um, I, I do the, I've been doing this thing while we were all in quarantine for, for COVID called Reading in Exile, where I just sort of take a book off the shelf and, and tell people why they should read it um, of various sorts. And when it came to Brothers Karamazov, I said, hey, you're going to be intimidated by this book. You shouldn't be. Uh, and I said, uh, read multiple translations and it'll help you to understand it and whatever. And someone uh, uh, put up on Instagram. So Russell Moore tells us not to be intimidated by this 600 page book by reading it twice. <laughs> say, well, no, that's not really what I meant. But <laughs> Oops, that's what I said, but not what that's I meant. That's what I said, yeah. <laughs> Literalist. <laughs> well, you know, um, one book that I'm sure you've read in that I pass around to people, and I say that you've probably read it because going back to the beginning of our interview, it, it immediately came to mind. Um, which is uh, Francis Spufford's book, Unapologetic. Have you read that book? I have not. Uh, and a lot of people have recommended that book to me. So, uh, so I should. I think so, because what you said at the beginning was that it, what drew you back to faith was probably Lewis's lyricism, the, the yeah. heart of Lewis, right? The yeah. uh, his probably his talk his talks about Zenzut the in that longing yes. right for the yes. un, for the unnameable that's where Spufford is coming at, at this in this book mm. the, the book is I think the, the subtitle is why Christianity makes emotional sense ah uh, yes and I think for a I think every four should probably read a book that does a defense of the Christian faith on the basis of emotions. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because, as you know, uh, feelings are a way of thinking. Right. They're just a different way of thinking. Right. And seeing the world. Uh, wow. Well, enough for this, because I'm, I'm getting so in deep into the caverns of ideas with you that I'm afraid I'll never get out and you'll never have the rest of your day to yourself. Anthony Skinner, what do you think? I did just, uh, through the process of this interview, read that article that you mentioned of Russell's, and it is really, really good. Everybody should read that. Give the title again. God doesn't want us to sacrifice the old. Christianity yeah. teaches that every single human life is valuable, even during the pandemic. Love it. So good. Yeah, it's a very good article. Russell, thank you so much for, for being on. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I love this program and uh, love listening to it. And so it's an honor to be on it. All right. Well, listen, Typology friends, listen up just a few things. One is I want to remind you uh, that we have a, 
uh, a test, in fact, Russell took it, uh, called the IEQ-9. It is, in my mind, uh, a wonderful uh, Enneagram assessment tool that gives you a really great uh, and robust report about your specific type, right? Identifies it, identifies your subtype, does a bunch of really good things. Um, and also Enneagram Made Simple. All of these you can find on my website, iancron.com. Russell, how do they find out about you? Uh, they can just go to russellmore.com. Great. Glad you got that URL. <laughs> Anthony, you know how we always end the show, right? Yes. You're going to take us out. Oscar Wilde. For yourself and everybody, everybody else is already, already taken. See you next time, folks.